I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. Hey guys, on this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast, we're finally diving in on a topic that y'all have been asking about for quite a while now, and that is public land tactics. We're well aware that a lot of our listeners are public land hunters, and we've been holding off because we wanted to make sure we did it in a way to where we aren't giving up certain pieces of property, too much information about a certain NWR or WMA, and we want to make sure to keep your sacred spots sacred. So what we did is we recruited from out of state to get some public land tactics that are applicable in Louisiana, and we connected with the host of the Southern Ground Hunting Podcast, Parker McDonald, who tells us about how he uses water to his advantage, how to locate beds for deer, and also some of the great opportunities that can be had close to the road or close to the launch. So this is going to be a great episode for us. But before we get started, we need to give a huge thanks to our sponsors of the podcast. We just picked up Old Cypress Outdoors, so welcome aboard and thank you for sponsoring the podcast for October. And also, as usual, a huge shout out to Steve German's Taxidermy and Cousin's Smokehouse. We couldn't put this on without you. So y'all be sure to check them out online and pick up a bag of Cousin Smokehouse jerky for your hunting bag this season. Let's get started. All right, so we're here with Parker McDonald, who is with the Southern Ground Hunting Podcast out of North Alabama. And we also have Locke Wheeler with us as well. And on this week's episode, we're going to be talking very safely about two styles of hunting. Number one is hunting on public land. And number two is going to be hunting by boat or going in by boat. So, Parker, thank you for uh, being on the show with us. Man, thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited about it. Locke, thanks for coming back. Buddy. Yeah, man. So, um, so Parker, what part of Alabama are you from? So, I'm actually, uh, long story short, I'm actually from Texas. I was born and raised in Texas, lived there for 18 years. Um, and then right after high school, moved to Alabama. And um, totally different styles of hunting, totally different everything. But I live in North Alabama, about 30 minutes north of Birmingham. And uh, in, in between Birmingham and Huntsville, if you're familiar with the area at all. Yeah, I am. So, um, so what brought you over there? Uh, so I am a, uh, a worship pastor at a church uh, here in Coleman, Alabama, called Daystar Church. And I've been here for about seven-ish years collectively. We moved back to Texas and then to Georgia for a little bit and then ended up right back here, same place. So really the church is what brought me here. Yeah, we just we really enjoy the area, really like it a lot. Great, man. So, so tell us a little bit about your podcast. Like, how long have you you've been doing it, and some of the topics y'all cover. So, I'm on the. I don't know if you're familiar. I'm sure some of your listeners are if they listen to podcasts a lot. But we, I'm part of the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, mm-hmm. which is um, which is owned by Dan Johnson, who is like the uh, he's the co-host of the Wired to Hunt podcast, and then he's also the host of the nine finger chronicles podcast and he started this network to basically just cover every aspect of whitetail deer hunting 
known to man. And so we've got like we've got ours, which which covers the southern part of the United States. We we talk to anybody from pretty much Texas, Oklahoma, um, Arkansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, anywhere, basically anywhere below the Mason Dixon line. Gotcha. And um, and that's pretty much what our what our podcast covers. But we've also got, of course, Dan's, which is Nine Finger Chronicles, which which really is um, he tell he has a lot of guys come on and talk about like stories of a certain buck or um, gear reviews and stuff like that. His isn't really confined to an area. Um, we have a guy named Garrett Prawl who does the DIY Sportsman, which mm-hmm. is like the best YouTube channel <laughs> known to man yeah, if yeah, you're okay. into like gadgets and stuff. Yeah, he, he's got some great some great information. I've I've checked him out online. He's awesome. He's great. He's really really a just super smart dude. And then we've also got Landon Legacy, which are uh, I, I want to say they they spend a lot of time around your neck of the woods. I think around um, Louisiana, Mississippi. Uh, they talk. I know they talk about that area a lot. And uh, Matt Dye and Adam Keith are their names, and they. And they just they crush it when it comes to like habitat management, food plots, and stuff like that. So we have all those all those podcasts are part of our network. So basically, what you get is like a podcast every single day, a deer hunting podcast every single day. Gotcha. Um, pretty much for anybody, anybody and everybody, you can you can get something on our channel. If you're an outdoorsman, then you'll find something on our channel. Then we also have a Western RSS feed, which is brand new, and that is like. Uh, just exactly what it sounds like. Elk hunters, um, bear hunters, uh, whatever kind of antelope, mule deer. And there's a whole other feed, a whole other list of podcasts that are on that feed as well, which is pretty cool. Very cool. That one's brand new. So what, what major outlets are y'all on that people can find your, um, your, your episodes? Uh, we're, pre- we're pretty much on all of the major ones. So we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, I don't even know the rest of them. <laughs> I know we're on. Usually, when I ask the question to Dan, Dan responds with all of the major ones. Yeah. So, so pretty much you can you can look up Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network and you'll find it on pretty much everything that people use. Google Play, I think. Very cool. Um, well, the thing that's been really interesting for for me with Louisiana Bowhunter has been, um, you know, so, podcasts as media. It's it's very much an in between kind of. Own unknown sector of the media market. And I actually, I'll, I'll go as far to say kind of unrespected as far as major media outlets go. Um, it's not video. It's not YouTube. It's not um, movies, of course. It's not live videos or anything like that. But the really unique thing about it, and I, I don't even know why I'm about to explain this because anybody listening knows this already, but it is something that you can do while doing other things without having to be a distraction or keep your phone on a certain screen the whole you know you can work during it you can drive during it but it's also very unique in the fact that when you watch a video on YouTube and it gets 10,000 views that means that at a minimum 10,000 people watch that video for what 3 seconds 10 seconds whatever the the trigger is these days when you get a download on a podcast, you can pretty well assume they listen to all 45 minutes or all hour and a half. You know, there's not a lot of people mm-hmm. that, that start a movie and don't finish it unless they fall asleep at the end. And so with that being said, a lot of times people are turning on a podcast while they're in some productive mode where they have to be in a place for an extended period of time. And so when we decided to do our podcast, uh, it was just like everything else, Louisiana bow hunter. Why are you doing this? There can't be enough people to support this. You're only in one state and one topic. And my argument's always been, well, um, the state sells about 35,000 archery licenses a year that can be as low as 28, as high as 40,000 in a year. That's a pretty good size market for me, you know? And so yeah. if I can only capture 500 or a thousand downloads per episode, that's a thousand people that live possibly right next to me or just in the city over from me that, um, that could apply whatever we're talking about this very weekend or when they go in the woods. And, and also Parker, just so you know, I don't know what y'all seasons are like there, but our bow season opened, um, September 15th, which is pretty early, but we have parts of the state that have ruts very early and also have parts of the state that don't rut until late January, early February. Um, we, we're not a consistent, you know, November 10th is the rut type of place. 
Um, and so yeah. we actually opened about two or three weeks ago and there's some people laying down some deer in 95 degree temperatures and 110% humidity, you know, but, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, so I appreciate you telling us a little bit about your podcast. I'm definitely going to check it out more and listen to a couple more episodes when I have a second and I'm driving. I have listened to the Nine Finger Chronicles, and he's got a great podcast. And you're right, he's he's kind of all over the place in terms of really interesting stories, really awesome, really awesome guests, and, and uh, I enjoy listening to his a lot. Um, so the topic today for us is actually going to be something that is our most requested topic that I've intentionally been stiff arming because I want to make sure that we do it correctly. And that is hunting public land. And so you are uh, going to be our guinea pig on this Parker in, in the way that we're going to talk about tactics and we're going to talk about approaches to the woods and how you hunt and what you look for and things like that but you don't hunt in Louisiana. So we're good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're not going to go blowing our favorite WMAs, you know, we're and, not going to get an, right. an internet meme yeah. off of this. <laughs> yeah. We're not, we're not going to be beat down by our <laughs> listeners for, you know, blowing our favorite W blowing their favorite WMAs and, and having people park and park behind certain colored trucks when they see them parked on the side of the road. So um, <laughs> anyway, so I understand from talking to Locke that you have a, relatively unique approach to the woods so go ahead and tell us about that yeah so actually i had i had Locke on the podcast the, the episode has not aired yet but i had Locke come on the podcast and talk about scree gear and, and some cool stuff talk about louisiana bow hunter and, and stuff like that and uh he was describing the public land there he was like man it's just not that good um our, our public land access is really terrible it's just a bunch of water and swamps i was like bro that sounds like the best thing in the world yeah. because that's the way that I access is just by water. I use my kayak um, pretty well 100% of the time. Um, starting last year, it became like a full time. This is the way that I'm going to hunt forever, and uh, and that's just by finding finding water access and going into those um, those landlocked places. I guess you could call it landlocked. It's kind of like landlocked on all sides but one, and then waterlocked, you know, on the on the other side and usually it's just little creek little creek bottoms that are coming off of the river off of the lakes and onto where you can like easily beach your kayak and get up onto the public land and so that's been my approach to it and uh and it was it was absolutely insane last year um when i decided this is the way i was going to do it i ended up uh, before our seasons are similar to yours they start a little bit late but they go until february the 10th mm-hmm. um in Alabama. And so our season starts, uh, October the 15th. So basically a month after yours oh, starts, wow. um, which is absolutely terrible, but I just have to remember that when it's February 10th and I'm in tree stand and hardly anybody else is. Well, depending, depending um, on where you hunt in Louisiana and I mean, if you really wanted to go die hard about it, you could bounce all over the state and take advantage of really every season and every rut, which there's like six of them. Um, but we hunt from September 15th. Uh, this year is open on September 15th. Um, and then it closes, the last area to close is February 15th. So we've got a, fo- wow. a solid, what's that, September, October, November, December, January, February, solid six months. Uh, yeah, a our, year. our state is, is sectioned off mm-hmm. in, they call it units? Areas. Areas. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, different areas have different dates. Yeah. So, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so we've got a very a very liberal season. Um, we can kill up to six deer a year per person, um, and uh, you know we've get we get a lot of people that are sometimes critical of that. And then when I travel to other parts of the country, or even like for example, we have one of our contributors currently in Colorado on an elk hunt, and um, trying to explain to people that there are parts of the country where you draw a tag, maybe for one deer. It, yeah. not not one buck and one doe but like you get one deer and so we we get from day one we get six tags we get three uh doe tags we get two buck tags and then we get an either sex tag and so you can kill up to four does and two bucks or three does and three bucks now they have because i have property in area four mm-hmm. and i can only kill three i can only use three of my tags because of the flood yeah 
and only two, only two of either uh, sex, either two does in one buck or two bucks in one doe. Can't kill three of either. Yeah, yeah, and that was from the the, wow. the flood of 2016, which was. Uh, you know, the rest of the country is pretty critical of Louisiana and flooding, if you remember Katrina at all. But um, mm-hmm. everybody thinks that the whole state of Louisiana is practically below sea level. And the reality is where the whole city of Baton Rouge and beyond flooded is like six to ten feet above sea level. We got three trillion gallons of water over like a five day period. It was the equivalent of two hurricanes that did, just didn't go anywhere. What we're seeing with Florence, mm-hmm. we, it wasn't an organized system or an organized storm, but the, the way that storm is acting over in the Carolinas, um, that kind of rain and kind of slow moving front is what we got. And yeah. we got 80% wow. of that 3 trillion in about 36 to 48 hours. I mean, it was, it was uh, unbelievable. But because of that, I mean, I res- I remember rescuing um, a fawn off the side of the road. We, we pushed a couple other ones kind of deeper in the woods from, um, from some areas where they would have uh, eventually been, had to swim off of, but yeah, it was bad, man. It was, it was terrible. But you know, and it's one like for me, I'm very conservative minded. Um, I'm not against our, our limits, but there is a, a strong side of me that wishes in some ways that we lowered our limits. So, mm-hmm. you know, for me, where I live, I'm I'm kind of on the outer parts of one of those areas. There was no flooding and there was no habitat um, intrusion of any kind, yet we're still limited. And I kind of like it. Because, You're under the umbrella, yeah. Because, you know, where I'm at, it's a beautiful area, but it's not a extremely high deer density area. Um, and people don't need to be killing six deer per, uh, yes, license, especially so, at a, yeah. after a flood like we had. Yeah. It, I mean, it's just, you know, it, 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 it serves as a conservation, me- conservation measure for me. I'm, I'm actually, mm-hmm. I'm good with it. So Parker, how many deer can you kill in Alabama every year? So that's a, that's what I was about to say. So basically statewide, I think it's statewide. It's most of the state. You can kill three bucks. So you get three buck tags. And you can kill them all in the same county, whatever. You get three buck tags. Um, and then during archery season, so October 15th to like November 15th, it would say, let's say it's a month long, um, you can kill as many do- You can kill a doe every single day. And that actually goes through February 15th. Like if you're using archery equipment, you can kill a doe every day of the season. If I, you think, want I to. think Georgia's the same way. So there's no limit on does? No limit on does. Georgia is, I, I'm um, almost positive that Georgia is the same way. Wow. So, I know Georgia, when I lived in Georgia, at least in the zone I was in, you could kill like 11 deer. Oh my God. So <laughs> you got like two, you got two buck tags that's and like, then nine doe tags or something like that. That's like the whole state being DMAP, you know, yeah. that's wild. Well, yeah. Um, and, and you don't see it. You don't typically see a lot of people doing that out here. Now that's, a, that's a pretty new development. Like, it used to be you could kill a buck and a doe a day, and then it changed to you could kill three bucks and a doe a day with whatever equipment you wanted to use. And then now a lot of the – so there's a lot of the state that is still you can kill a doe a day with a rifle if you wanted to. Wow. Um, but the zone, the area zone that I'm in, you can only kill um, – you can only kill doe with a rifle during d- these doe days. So they have like, I think it's two different weekends that you can that you can do it on, and uh, but you can still kill a doe every day of the season with a bow if you wanted to on That's, public land, private land, whatever. Well, That's wild. Until until the last what has it been two years since we implemented the tagging system, and really only about a year that they've really strictly enforced it. In in Louisiana, yeah, I thought it, it was longer than that. It, well, it, they still don't have it in Mississippi, so. Unless the same game warden checks you coming out of the woods with the, every time you shoot a deer, yeah, it's an honor system, which uh, you know we can all pretty much assume how that goes. Yeah, in a lot of cases. Yeah, and it's definitely that way for us. Like you have to print a harvest record, which has three, three slots. I think it actually has like six slots all together, and you have your three buck tags. And then if you kill a doe, if you kill more than three does or however many slots are left, you just print another one. So it's like. You can write it down, and if you never get checked, 
you just print another one. It's like printing, and printing money. Literally, yeah. all you have to do. That's wild. So, s- tell us a little bit about like what's what's your approach and how do you prepare to go to a new place on public land? What are you What are you doing? Okay, so so this is all kind of. I'll, t- I'll tell you how it all started for me last year. Um, I, I've always been a kayak fisherman, and um, just decided like, hey, I'm tired of. I'm tired of paying thousands of dollars to be on a hunting club to lease land out here. That's not being productive at all because I wasn't seeing deer, wasn't killing deer. And so I was like, I might as well just not see deer and not kill deer for free on public land. If it's going to work that way. That's the that's pretty valid that's, point. <laughs> that's the glass half empty uh, mindset, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I might as well do all this and have money, you know? Yeah. Um, if I'm going to hunt no matter what, then I might as well not spend the money on it, you know? I'll spend money on gear and things that I actually need instead of on a piece of property that sucks and that's over hunting. Yeah. Um, and so, so I, I made that decision. I bought, uh, I bought a trailer and like decked it out. If anybody wants to see it, you can, um, we actually, so we do a podcast, but we also do a YouTube channel. It's kind of a vlog style YouTube channel and, um, it's the sportsman's nation as well. Um, but ours is are called the Southern ground hunting vlog. And, I do a lot of, I post all of my videos, the kayak hunts and stuff. I have a setup, my kayak setup video is on there as well. And, uh, and that's the Sportsman's Nation network on YouTube. Um, but I bought this trailer and I just decked it out and made it to where it, it looks like a four wheeler trailer for a deer hunter, except it's got a kayak on it. It's an old jet ski trailer. And that was kind of where it started. And, um, and then I bought Onyx, my, the mapping system. Mm-hmm. And I bought that and just started looking at all these pieces of property, of public land within, you know, an hour, hour and a half of my house. And was like, man, there's actually kind of a lot of, a lot of water access. So my first step was last year was just driving to all of these points that I had marked on my map where I could possibly get a kayak in the water. And, and it, it really worked out pretty well. I mean, I went to a few spots that weren't accessible just because the bridge was too high or whatever. Um, but luckily for me, there's a lot of that. We have a huge lake around here in our area mm-hmm. and a lot of these little small, like hundred acre, 200 acre, 40 acre pieces of this national forest. It's not a WMA that I'm actually hunting. It's a national forest. And so um, it, it's open basically the way the season's open bow season is bow season rifle season is rifle season on there because typically it's harder to hunt those areas than a wma yeah and so i'm going in and my first step was i was marking all these little pieces that were close to the water and then i went through and marked all these the possible launch points and basically all i did was i just took a day i took a solid day and drove out to this national forest and went and checked all of those access points because I didn't want to waste time, you know, marking up bedding areas and, and mm-hmm. food sources and transitions and all stuff like that if I couldn't even access it. So the first step was, where can I actually get into? And um, and so that was my first thing. And then after that, it was kind of like, well, let's just light up this map like a Christmas tree on all these possible spots that I could hunt. And and what I was what I was doing, I'm in a kayak. So there's no motor or anything like that. Uh, I, I paddle in all the time. So I'm looking, you know, I'm looking to be south of two miles. I don't, I don't really want to go a whole lot further than two miles just because of time that it takes to get that, that distance. That's a long ways to paddle. It is. It is. And I only have a few spots, but sadly my best spot that I go to is right at two miles. Oh man. And so, um, I, that's actually, that's actually false. I, my, absolute best spot is during bow season um there's a spot where i can basically paddle like 100 yards and get to this spot but it's the only way to get to it you can't walk to it that's the cheat code right that's the right up down up down left right left right select that's that is the the ultimate cheat code is that we talked about this on the last podcast we did which is um the fact that some of the best hunting can be, and I'm not going to say that, you know, I'm a person that does this, but I probably should, can be done closest to the launch. So it's interesting that you're paddling in because what I'm about to say doesn't really apply to you, but it's going to hit home with you about everybody else that you know. 
people go and spend fifty, sixty thousand dollars on a truck. They spend I don't know if y'all have surface drives or long tails over there, but Louisiana, they almost outnumber the outboards. And so there's places that if you were getting going there by kayak, you might get run over by a pro drive. You might get run over by a gator tail. Yeah. Um yeah. and but the thing is, is those boats are fifteen to twenty five thousand dollars. You got guys that have side by sides that cost twenty grand. And my point in saying all this is that when you spend an exorbitant amount of money on something, generally people want to use it to its fullest. Okay, and mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, there's there's always a balance in life of time and money, right? When you don't have a lot of money, you yep. have a lot of time. When you don't have a lot of time, you have a lot of money. Sometimes, right? Occasionally, <laughs> That's a good point. so I've heard. So <laughs> I've heard. Point. I certainly don't live up to that because uh, I don't have a lot of either. Um, but regardless, when you have a, I don't know, let's say a twenty thousand dollar electric Polaris. What are you going to do? You're going to go to the furthest reaching part of your property or the furthest section of WMA land. And so every morning, imagine if you're a deer and it's hunting season and every morning at 4.30 a.m. you hear this just race uh, across the, the property somewhere. And eventually you realize after all that early morning in the dark commotion that where it is least pressured is kind of towards the front of the property. And I'm not saying that all deer do this, but you're saying that when you go in by kayak, your best spot that you know of is only accessible by boat, right? And mm-hmm. it's only a hundred yard paddle. Yeah, so it's it's accessible by boat. Um, it is accessible by the private land that is next to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and those guys do hunt it. That's what I was going to say about it. Like in, in that month, that month span of time of bow season, these guys, they don't bow hunt. So I have it pretty much to myself for that month. Perfect. And then once, once rifle season gets here, I didn't realize it was going to be this way, but I went into my spot opening day and there was like four guys sitting up next to trees and stuff. And I was like, well, then mark that place off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I'll be captain obvious. And (laughs) yeah. And, and and, the pressure, I think as, especially as bow hunters, we're trying to get close. Um, and the pressure on, uh, on the deer, whether it's private property or public land, wherever you're, you're accessing, I, I think if you polled hunters, that would have to be an overwhelming at the top of the pole as the issue that is, it's the biggest issue that we face. Mm-hmm. Um, the th- all these tips and tricks and tactics and products that we all dabble in trying to figure out how to be a more successful hunter, they are all neutralized by pressure. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can't, you know, in the same vein, you can't kill a 200-inch buck where 200-inch bucks don't live. You can't kill a 100-inch buck if he won't come out in the daylight because he's scared to death. Yeah. You know, you, know yeah. It's, it's, you, you make a good point. It reminds me of something else. Um I, I went on to Instagram today and I asked the question, you know, uh, I think on our story and I said, you know, who would you like us to interview on the podcast? And then the next one was, what are some topics you'd like us to cover on the podcast? Eight out of 10 of them were about public land. And one of them was from a friend of mine. And he, he said, and I didn't answer him back, but he said, um, how long do you have to, um, how long do you have to leave a feeder for a mature buck to be comfortable coming to it. And I never responded to him because I didn't want to, I, you know how tone doesn't come across well over text. I didn't want to sound rude, but my answer is you, there is no amount of time long enough. You know, <laughs> the only way that you can have a mature buck come to a feeder consistently is if you never go in there and hunt it ever. And you run it year round. Now, of course that doesn't, that doesn't pertain to public land hunting at all, but there are a lot of questions that we got about public land hunting and, and things like that. But this was one that was kind of interesting to me because when you add a feeder, you're alerting your presence to an animal, right? Just like what we were talking about a couple of podcasts ago, which is that the best chance you have of killing an animal, especially a mature animal, is the first time you ever go there, which we covered yeah. that in our, in our Warren Womack episode, which he does you know, what we kind of name bow and go, which is you grab your stand and you scout while you hunt and you hunt while you scout and you go in the woods once and you come out of the woods once and the first time you find sign, you set up then and there. Um, and, um, 
you know, when you do that on public land, you can overpressure the area that you want to hunt on public land. Um, mm-hmm. And so you either knew, need to do one of two things. You either need to go in there and be just absolutely positive of the wind direction and where you think your deer is coming from and not alert the deer in the area of your presence. And that's during the season. Or the best time to scout public land, in my opinion, is the end of deer season. That's mm-hmm. when that's when it, it looks like it's going to look next year when you hunt it. Well, you know, Chad, in the very first podcast we did, and we had Chad Abear on with us, and he talked about how um, becoming a turkey hunter mm-hmm. was one of the things that really, really uh, got him going as a deer hunter. And his the reasons for that uh, was the time he spent in the woods during during the spring and, and what he learned and how much uh, information he could gather. And that plays right into what Kyler said about the end of deer season. Um, February and even into March, into early into uh, the early part of the turkey season, there's a lot of information to gather, and it's a lot easier to scout uh, just the landscape physically. The landscape is easier to scout than it is right now when the grass is thigh high and it's everything's green. Everything's green. It's hot. The humid. I mean, you get wore out. It, it's a very valid point, and 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 I'm just expanding it from the end of deer season for you turkey hunters. You know, take advantage of that because mm-hmm. the woods are very readable all the way you know down here you know into april but you know when i go up even like into the midwest and all the way into late april i'm up there turkey hunting and the deer sign is evident and mm-hmm. very simple and and right in front of you so it's it's hard it's hard to read deer the first couple of weeks of the season number one they're in some summer patterns whether they're does or bucks you've got does that are you know more cautious than normal because they have new fawns with them um, and then, so they're protective mama mode big time. And then you've also got bucks that are traveling as, you know, groups of two to five, sometimes more. But what you have to look out for is browse, which I think as humans, we always overlook that. Um, we're always looking for more, uh, m- more obvious signs such as, you know, caps from white oaks and, um, hard mass type of types of things, or, you know, the, uh, Holy grail of, of, uh, Louisiana hunting, which everybody seems to give persimmon trees the, the most credit is like this, this, uh, uh, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow type of type of <laughs> <laughs> feeling. Well, they really are. If you've ever been able to hunt them, they really they are. are. It's unbelievable. And, and then we've also got, um, what is it? Black locust pods. Is that, that honey locust? Honey. Sorry. Yeah. Honey locust. So yeah. we've also got honey locust trees. Um, and those are even funny in and of itself. You've got some places where the deer would pass over, um, you know, the, the greatest food of all time that you could possibly feed it and go pull down these pods out of the trees. And then you got other areas where they'll, they'll fall and rot and you hang, hang a camera and you'll never get one on camera, you know? Um, so those are very mm-hmm. hit and miss, but, um, early season in the year, what are you looking for Parker on public land that makes you want to hunt it? Um, so a lot of what I'm looking for, the thing with, the thing with water access is, um, and it may be differently where you, where you guys are at because there's more water access than there is here, but typically the deer are not, um, they're not super spooked by anything coming from the water. Like I've gotten out of my kayak before and walked up on, you know, a doe group 10 yards away from me, right, right where I beach the kayak at they don't care because they're not they're not expecting danger to come from the water so mm-hmm. um what i'm looking for most of the time is obvious obvious spots like transition lines um there's one spot that i have specifically where um so on the national forest they don't plant anything now they're on the wmas they do but on national forest they don't so um, I'm trying to use, I'm trying to use food that's on private land to my advantage. So on these, on these private land pieces, these guys are hunting it. Obviously there's one spot where there's a huge club and I'm hunting the deer walking off of their property. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a trophy managed club and they kill 150 inch deer off of it every single year. And, and I'm hunting in their bedroom and, uh, they have a food plot that, that is planted on top of a ridge and dude, there's bedding points all over the place. So with the national forest side, 
Um, it's they they burn it. It has controlled burns and stuff that happen on there, and it's really open woods. But on the on the private piece, there's a transition line that's just like a pine thicket, so thick, and those deer are bedding in there, and they're using that transition line to get up to that food plot. And so I didn't realize that that was what it was going to be whenever I got to it. But when I saw it, it was like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. So that that's where I ended up killing all three of my bucks last year. You you ended up killing them right next to that thick area. Yeah, walking off of it. Wow. I, I watched them. I kind of figured out it was an observation set uh, that I did one morning, and I figured out where they were, where those bucks were coming out on the side of this ridge, coming out of that, out of that private land piece, and they were walking this ridge after they were getting up from their bed, walking this ridge, and headed up to that food, and and it just ended up being like the dang spot a person would have to pay me a whole lot of money for me to tell them where that spot (laughs) is because it's just it's just absolutely incredible and so that's typically what i'm looking for is those boundary areas where Mm -hmm. i know there's a property that is managing it and you can usually tell that from a map you can tell what kind of food they have planted in their in their plots a lot of the times you know um and then the the one of the biggest things that I'm always looking for is bedding. Um, I'm looking for bedding points and where can I ambush basically from those deer traveling from bedding the food. So we and so we say bedding area all the time as if we all just know what we're talking about. But when you're looking on a map and you say, okay, I think you say to yourself, I think that's a bedding area. What are you seeing? So what I'm, what I'm looking for is, you know, that I don't know if y'all are familiar with Dan and fault, but mm-hmm. I'm, I use a lot of these beast tactics while I'm scouting. And, and, and like what you guys said, my first scouting trip this year was like the first week of March. So the, the woods were still clear and I was able to see, and we scouted all summer, all spring, all summer. And uh, I just went scouting two days ago, you know, so I, I spent a lot of time in the woods trying to find these bedding points because you can't always tell you know, from a map, but, but a lot of times you can, I'm looking for the steepest terrain that I can find. So the, the steepest area, and I'm trying to find the, the bed off these points. So typically what deer are going to do is they're going to bed on, um, the, where they can look out over, they're going to have the wind at their back. They're going to be able to see anything in front of them and smell anything coming from behind them is kind of in that hill country bedding type scenario. And so depending on the direction of the point is going to be the direction of, um, of the wind is wherever they're betting is going to be based on this, on this wind direction. And I don't know what y'all's, what y'all's, uh, terrain is like in Louisiana. Necessarily where most of your guys flat. What's that? Flat, flat. and diverse. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes wet, so, sometimes dry, sometimes thick. In, in the same conversation of, of the bedding, I'm curious because I don't know if either one of you have seen, heard, or read some of the Dr. Grant Woods stuff that he's done about bedding, and he talks about thermal cover and how it changes mm-hmm. throughout the year where uh, hotter times of the year, the deer are looking for thermal cover that actually has airflow through it. Mm-hmm. Um, colder times of the year, they're looking for more insulated cover. And I'm, I'm curious... I know you do uh, a lot of your stuff archery and archery season. And you talked about how your spots are better, but you know when you're looking at these bedding areas, are you seeing a change with the weather pattern as to how the deer bed and and that kind of thing? Absolutely, because you know typically most of your north northern winds are going to be your colder winds, and so they're going to come from mm-hmm. the colder months. So. So uh, a south-facing slope, a south-facing point is going to, most of the time, I mean, like yesterday, for example, we had a, a, nor- a wind coming out of the north. It was super weird. Um, probably had a lot to do with the, the with hurricane. The, yeah. the hurricane you <laughs> it's because you're on the left side um, of the hurricane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, but it was, I mean, the winds were coming straight out of the north where I was scouting at. Um, but typically in this time of year, you're going to get south southwest and some southeast winds and so with a like when i was out two days ago i found a huge buck bed um on this ridge that was kind of faced to the northwest i guess the the point was faced northwest Mm 
and and that's going to be the reason why it was so fresh and so well used is because he's been he's been using that bed you know and that point he can bet on that point during any wet any wind coming out of the south mm -hmm. he's got the water in front of him so this this really definitely applies right here is because the deer are going to use the water to their advantage if if predators and humans are not normally coming from water they're going to have that area where they can look out and see it and know that probably nothing is going to come from there yeah but from behind them so in this specific area there's a food plot a field planted behind him on private land and that's where he's going to eat at but he can smell anything coming around there um from his back and then see the water and then another thing that that water does is it it provides incredible thermal advantage for him you know that the the wind coming out of the out of the south when the thermal switch is going to pull straight to that water and when they when they when the sun comes up it's going to come right back up to him hmm. does that make sense yeah i've never thought about that i think that this is great information because i think one of the things that we many of us if not all of us at some point have done whether it's private property or public land, we all find this thick, gnarly area, and we think, well, if I can't access it, a deer must want to lay in there. Mm -hmm. You know, and we don't put a lot of uh, other thought into that. It's like, well, I mean, look at that. A, a beagle dog can't run through that, so deer must be laying in there. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's always true, uh, yeah. especially, not for not. Mature, especially not for mature deer because there's disadvantages for him locking himself down in there yeah. in the same way um as it would be for us to got to, to try to navigate through there now i i will tell you i will tell you though last year i hunted public land a lot and and not to bring this up again but i only hunted traditional and so um you parker a moment ago you said something about a an observation stand okay and an observation stand to me when i think of that i think of an area where you can see longer than you can shoot right and you can get a pretty mm -hmm. good picture of what's moving through the area um, well, when you hunt with a traditional bow, you are funneled into areas intentionally that you might only be able to shoot 20 yards. And so there's a balance there. Do I think all deer live in the gnarliest, thickest briar patches in the state? No. Are they always out in the open? Absolutely not. But I will tell you from my experience, when I was forced to keep my kill shots under 20 yards, it put me in areas that I otherwise would never hunt with a compound. I never would because it doesn't give me enough options. And I think, I think we all do that a lot. We, we hunt stands where, I mean, some of my favorite stands are on field edges where I can make 60-yard shots or shoot behind me and make a 12-yard shot. Well, uh, the, same, the same, uh, let's call it a sliding scale, applies mm -hmm. to a compound hunter and a rifle hunter because I, I have friends that I hunt with on private property that yeah. they rifle hunt, and, I, and all my stands are set up for bow hunting. And from time to time, you know, it's a running joke of, well, you're seeing deer, you're the deer whisperer, you're seeing deer, and we're not seeing deer. It's because I'm in places where... The deer want to be. I, I'm, I'm, yeah. in, I'm, and I'm also in a place where I'm not going to see a deer unless it's, you know, close quarters. So I'm, I'm in a better situation yeah. than where a rifle hunter wants to, wants to make uh, full advantage of his options. So he wants to see a long way. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, you that's, know that's true. I mean... Yeah, the deer. Going back to what you said, Kyler, about you know, it's not necessarily always the the thickest, gnarliest, nastiest stuff. Now, I will say that if you have two different bedding points that are perfect, same wind, same same part of the thermal tunnel or whatever, um, same advantages, but one's thick and one's open, they're going to be in the thick one. They're going to choose that one. Yeah. Right. Um, but you know, if there's a situation where it gives them the advantage it doesn't have to be, you know, super gnarly in there at all. Yeah. It just, you know, well, you know many, what I'm saying? How many, I know for me growing up in a large hunting camp with a bunch of old men, friends of my grandfather, and, you know, you, you hear uh, these stories, they all tell you about how that big buck watched you walk in. You know, he <laughs> knows you're there. Yeah. And, but I think that um, those, those cliche things that you've always heard around deer camp, they're steeped in a lot of truth. Mm -hmm. a deer's, oh, yeah. That deer's way smarter than we give him credit for. And I think they're all, whether they're true or not, they're meant to make you feel kind of self-conscious to be more cognizant of all of your movements as a hunter, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you this. The biggest, the first bedding area that I ever found in my life, um, it was before I ever even, 
adapted these beast style um, tactics. It was on a piece of private land on a club that I was on here in Alabama. The last year I hunted a private land club. The last year I got a one. So three years ago. And it was the end of the season, and I was walking through this little area that I was like, okay, you know, this place sucks. There's no deer here. I hadn't hardly seen any deer. The only time I got, I, I really had a good day was when there was a guy squirrel hunting in a in a creek bottom and blew every deer across. I mean, they ran across the power line I was hunting, but I never got a shot off at them. There's like six bucks that all came out that day. I was like, okay, there's, there's deer in here, but I got to figure out where they're at. And so it was like close to the last day. And I went up on this ridge that was seriously hundred yards away from the gate that we opened to get in the place. And I got on that and dude, there were beds everywhere. You didn't even have to know what a bed looked like to understand, like, these are deer beds. Mm -hmm. And, and it was, I mean, hundred yards away, that gate, every time you opened it, it was like, so they knew every person that ever came in there. Yeah. And that's why I wasn't seeing any deer because they were all bedded up on that freaking hillside looking at that gate. Um, hmm. So I, there is a lot of truth to those overlooked spots. And, and my uncle stayed on that lease last year. And I told him, I was like, if you want to kill a deer, you need to go through that gate, let them know that you're there and then go where they're not expecting you to be at. Just hunt right off the road and you'll kill a deer. And he never did it. And then during turkey season, I took him to it. And he was like, holy crap. And I pulled the hair out of the bed, you know, and showed it to him. And so I've got a question for you, Parker, that I'm sure a lot of our listeners are thinking right now, which is you've mentioned a buck bed a couple times. You've been, you've mentioned bedding areas, which is, you know, uh, a lot of fallen trees and limbs and thick areas. But how do you know when it's a buck bed versus a doe bed? What are some of those signs that you're, you're looking at? Well, so that's the, that's a million dollar question. Um, it, it's not, there's really no way to like, know for sure. This is a buck bed. This is a doe bed. But usually what you can find is a buck bed. A lot of times is going to be by itself. There's going to be one, you'll find old rubs going into it and going out of it. Um, and it'll be in the best spot. Mm-hmm. The spot that you look at, once you kind of get an understanding of terrain and, and what you're looking for when you're looking for bedding, you can go into those spots and be like, okay, this is probably a buck bed. It'll be by itself. A lot of times doe beds, you'll see like four or five, six beds kind of within a, you know, 20 yard area. And that's because there's, it's a doe group, a doe family group, and they're all bedded up together. And then the bucks are usually, you know, by themselves. Now, there have been times when I found like three or four beds right next to each other that were in the perfect spot. And, you know, you can see the, the rubs going all over the place around the area. A lot of times you find like this time of year, you'll find the, the bucks that are in bachelor groups, they're bedding together. Not always. A lot of times there's a, a dominant buck, if you will, that's bedding by himself, but you see a lot of your bucks in bachelor groups. And so, if you go into those areas that you're like, this has got to be the most perfect bedding area I've ever seen. It looks right. And you find, you know, three beds there that look like they've been used. It could definitely be a bachelor group. Um, but that, it doesn't always apply if that makes sense, because most people are hunting October, November, December, when the bucks are out of their bachelor groups. Um, now that early season, you know, it definitely does apply. I was in Kentucky a couple of weeks ago and, or last, I guess last week and, um, the bucks were all together. I mean, it sounds, all the time you just see bucks. It sounds to together. me like, it sounds to me like you're basically just using logical deduction. And then, I mean, <laughs> the, the, the things that we know, and I, I don't mean that to, I don't mean that in any way, I, but when you're looking at these beds, you know, uh, the the best way to summarize it is use what you know about deer behavior in general and apply it right. to what you're looking at and just make a logical. Well, uh, that that uh, that and actually to take that a little further, the question that we get a lot of times is about public land. Um, it's from people uh, that haven't spent much time in the woods yet. Um, and right. and I, I don't mean this to be nasty or ugly, but a lot of times it's people that haven't been in the woods 
at all. And, and they almost want the answer to the test. And the reality is, is that there is no right answer. Every piece of public land is different. Every terrain, every type of terrain is different. Um, and the only way to become really self-sufficient on public land and have a lot of success is going to be scouting. The catch 22 there is that if you scout too much or you scout um, without a lot of consideration for your scent or sweat or you touch a lot of things or even do some things like you're not supposed to be doing on public land like cutting limbs and whatnot, you're leaving behind uh, the fact that you've been there. And trust me, they know. They know yeah, for it's, a it's fact. It's their bedroom. Yeah, you would and, know. And yeah. I don't necessarily always think that that's a bad thing. Um, to bump a deer, especially like right now, I'm not going into most of the areas that I have picked out, like my best areas. I'm not going in. I've got a couple spots mapped, marked that I want to check out that I haven't been to before. Um, but what I, one thing that is very like what, what Locke said, very logical is that if you bump a deer, if you bump a, say you bump a huge buck while you're scouting one day, that's not a bad thing for that area. Don't make a habit of it. But if you bump him, it means that he got out of there and that bed worked. Mm -hmm. So he, he, he is, his advantage worked. He got out of there before he got hurt. And so he's going to come back to that bed eventually. And he may even come back to that bed as soon as you leave, but he's going to come back because he had the upper hand and he got away. Now, if you keep doing it over and over and over and over again, he's eventually going to be like, crap, I'm going to move on. But mm -hmm. it's not always a bad thing to to bump him, so you know that it's that he's there. Um, but you know, just don't make a habit out of it. Now, like we're talking about buck beds and doe beds, and you can use doe bedding areas to your advantage big time because a lot of times what these bucks are going to do, especially during the rut, is they're going to go, they're going to find you're going to find those scrape lines, those rub lines and those trails that are downwind of these doe bedding areas. So this is why scouting all bedding areas is good, because you want to know exactly where those does are bedding so that you can set up to hunt the bucks that are scent checking the doe bedding areas. Yeah, because that's typically how they're going to be finding the does that's is by great. their scent. Uh, so one last thing, let's go over one last topic before we, we shut it down here. So you're using Onyx Hunt, you said, right? Is that yeah. is that yes, the sir. only uh, technology you're using for scouting and for your hunting? It is. So I have, uh, as far as like, uh, it is and it isn't. So I use um, that. And then I also use another app called Ventu, Ventu Sky or Vent I, it looks like Ventusky, but it's Ventu Sky, I think. Hmm. Um and it is, it shows like the wind current. It's like $2, I think, but it shows like the wind currents. Like it has these little, there used to be a, uh, like wind current.net or I can't remember the actual name of the website, mm -hmm. but you basically just see these little, it almost looks like little lines that's like flowing and you can see the actual wind current. And so I use that, you know, in Kentucky was the first time I ever used it as far as, um, in a hunting scenario. Um, but I'm going to be using that a lot this year. Now, you know, where I hunt, it, it doesn't always work because I'm in a lot of hill country and the wind just does different things when you're in the hills. But um, and then, of course, where you guys are hunting, water is going to mess with your thermals almost mm -hmm. all of the time. So yeah. your wind isn't, you know, the wind direction isn't always the most important thing that you need to be thinking about. Gotcha. Um, but Onyx, Onyx, I spend the majority of my time. If my phone dies in the woods, it's because I was using Onyx. Well, it's got, <laughs> and, it's definitely got the highest quality mapping um, that I've seen off of any app. Um, it's better than, than, um, than the satellite imaging you get on your, your maps app on your phone or anything like that. Um, I actually, I, I use two apps myself and there's, this is, fun. this is an interesting topic as well, because a lot of people are really critical about using your phone for hunting. And my opinion of it is why would you not use something that can help you out? You know, this isn't yeah. a deer locating app. This isn't something as cheesy as that. This is something that provides you better information to make better decisions in the woods. And, um, so I started out years ago with an app called hunt stand, um, which, yep. which does a lot of what your Vinci sky sounds like it does. Um, uh, I used it for, uh, marking stands and then pre selecting them depending on what the weather was going to be maybe the day before or a week before I planned on hunting them. 
I would set up stands and I would leave notes in there for myself. And I would say, you know, east wind, south wind only, or maybe a note in all caps, no north wind or something like that. A little note to myself not to hunt on certain winds. Um, and then they have a decent map uh, and a decent GPS tracker. And they even act in it. They even ended up adding um, parcel information in the last year or so as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel as if that was what really launched Onyx Maps was the uh, parcel information, the ownership information, and who owns what land and what the what the boundary lines are and things like that. But Onyx has a superior mapping program as well as um, GPS tracker, breadcrumbs. I really mm-hmm. like their breadcrumb system a lot better than HuntStand. It's a little e- more user-friendly. My thing is, is I still use HuntStand because the wind direction is crucial information, but also it's kind of what I started with. So it's where all my stands are. And I just, yeah. I, you yeah. know, this will be the third or fourth year in a row that I just don't move them over and I use two apps. Um, so one of the things about HuntStand uh, sorry, I interrupted you. No, but you're good. One of the things that I love about HuntStand is that HuntStand actually uses wintertime satellite imagery. Mm-hmm. So you can actually see what what the woods are going to look like. You can see those transition lines. You can see the pine thickets. You can see, you know, the stuff that stays green and stays thick all the time, uh, as opposed to Onyx, which is, you know, with, Onyx is a partner of ours. And um, I've talked to Dylan Dowson, who is one of the guys that works there before, and he has told me um, basically their mapping system is is designed for the guys out west, and that's yes. that's kind of their that's their target target audience, you know, that they're trying to hit. Um, but the other thing that he told me is that um, Onyx is really innovative. I guess is the right word. And a lot of the stuff that they have in their back pocket, they're waiting on technology to catch up with it so that they can release these things. And so I wouldn't be surprised at all if everything that you're talking about that HuntStand offers mm-hmm. is that Onyx doesn't is eventually going to be offered by Onyx. Yeah. Um, you know, they 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 do a really good job. There's a few things that, that I don't even necessarily like about it, but... You know, I I know that they have a lot of, I'll say it this way, they have a lot of money to work with, and they have a lot of really, really good minds that are working for them. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to see a lot of that stuff, you know, eventually roll out of Onyx, I believe. Um, but but you know, I I'm like you, like there's there's some things that I that I need to use Hunt Stand for. I have Hunt Stand, and. Um, and I did have all of my stands and locations marked up and everything, but I just had to kind of go in. The good thing about Onyx is there's a, a desktop version of it. So you just pull it up on your desktop and yeah. while you're sitting at home, you get on your computer and just start mapping your area. And it'll, it'll transfer, and, um, it'll transfer from computer to your phone, right? And vice versa. It will. That's pretty it will. Neat. And the, the, the best part, you know, you were talking about the tracker, my favorite part about Onyx is that you can save your maps and it'll use GPS even when you don't have service. Yeah. And so cool. you can, you can use it, you know, if you're in the deepest part of the woods where you have zero service, it's still a GPS Yeah, and it works. Let's, uh, I, I think we got some great information for our listeners. And, uh, I also think we successfully didn't ruin any of Louisiana, uh, WMA information. So we won't have people coming with, uh, trying to tar and feather us. But Parker, do you have anything else that you'd like to add, man, or, or lock even you? No, man. I mean, um, if anybody's interested in, in knowing more of, you know, the kayak hunting style, public land, check out the huntingbeast.com. That's obviously going to be your best tool, but, um, look up, look up Southern ground on the sportsman's nation network on YouTube. We post all of our videos. Just about every single hunt is going to be on there this year. Um, especially any hunt that's successful will be on there, but we just started, we did our first series. It was a Kentucky public land series and I was in my kayak and we finished that up a week ago and it was a video every single day. It was a semi live video every single day. So, um, check that out, check out the sportsman nation podcast network. You'll hear some of our stuff. Yeah. And, uh, if anybody has any, anything that they feel like that they would want to talk about on our podcast on Southern ground, we'd love to cover Louisiana. So, yeah, man, you know, um, podcasts are, they're addictive. As soon as you finish one, you're looking for another one. So I'll definitely be checking out more of your episodes and, and, uh, I encourage our listeners to do the same thing. 
So, well, I appreciate yeah. you uh, appreciate you being on with this, Parker Locke. Appreciate yeah. you being on as well as uh, as always. Absolutely. Well, uh, until next time, y'all be good. Thank you. Thanks, Parker. All right, thanks, buddy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. If you've got anyone you'd like to hear on the show, send us an email at info at louisianabowhunter.com. We want to say a huge thank you to our sponsors, Old Cypress Outdoors, Cousin Smokehouse, and Steve German's Taxidermy. We could not put this podcast on without you, so thank you so much for your support. Y'all be sure to subscribe to the podcast to receive updates for when we release new episodes. And make sure you follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and the website at louisianabowhunter.com. See y'all next week.